Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to episode five of the LPP podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes, and I'm a coach at LPP, or the Life Process Program. LPP was founded by Dr. Stanton Peel. It's an online program that offers personalized help, including written exercises and then written responses from a trained addiction coach. The program also provides one-on-one communication between the person using the program and the respective coach. The coach will then communicate with you in a way that you prefer, either through written messages or a call or video interface. LPP coaches are also trained to talk about addictions in a way that puts the people seeking help at the center of the dialogue. The whole system is built around best addiction science and evidence available, and at the same time, it's compassionate, non-judgmental, and completely commonsensical. Indeed, we offer an alternative to 12-step programs and an alternative to diagnostic or disease-based programs to which you may be accustomed. It is possible that someone is experiencing something that could be best described as an addiction, but we would never call that person an addict. In fact, most people grow out of their addictions over time, so labeling them wouldn't make sense. And that makes our job at LPP actually quite simple and clear. We're just helping you understand and articulate and perhaps expedite the process of overcoming addiction, a process that you may well have achieved on your own over time. If you want to learn more about us, you can visit the website lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media. Links to all of those things are in the show notes. Today you're hearing the recording of Dr. Stanton Peel as he delivers a talk to a group in Galway, Ireland. His keynote hits on the importance of recognizing values as well as motivation, skills, connection, purpose, and meaning when overcoming addiction. He also fields questions and debunks a range of addiction myths. We hope that this episode will bring you tremendous value. Let us know whether it did or whether it didn't, and if you have suggestions, by writing to info at lifeprocessprogram.com. That's info at lifeprocessprogram.com. Hope you enjoy. One thing you have to keep in mind is um, anybody who quits any addiction sort of up to the time they quit isn't living their values, really. And then all of a sudden they are. So every day you always make that shift. And the, the fact that they're at the point before they're doing that just doesn't disprove the values are still critical. So, uh, you know, I always use the same example because um, it seems so illustrative. Um, I always talk about my uncle Ozzy because uh, when I went away to graduate school and then I, my grandfather died and I came home and uh, my uncle Ozzy was at the funeral and I go, didn't you used to smoke Ozzy? And he said, oh, for God's sake. He was, I think, 42 at the time. I smoked for 25 years, four packs a day since I was 18, and my uncle Ozzy fixed TVs and radios. He smoked unfiltered cigarettes, so he'd always have one lit by the table. I mean, you know, it's almost like being on an IV, having the nicotine constantly go in. And I said, I was still just in graduate school, but I don't like to waste my time on small talk, you know? So I said, well, why'd you quit? And he said, well, I went out to uh, lunch. They gave a free lunch at a bar, and uh, he wasn't a big drinker. And the sliced cigarettes, this was 1962, before the Surgeon General's report. And uh, the 
price of cigarettes had risen from 30 cents to 35 cents, and I put in 35 cents, and a coworker of mine said, look at Ozzy, he's a sucker for the tobacco companies. They could raise the price to a dollar and he'd pay that. So when I tell the story, I tell what is true. My uncle Ozzy was a big labor activist. He was totally, he worked for GE, but he was always stand, shop steward. He was always standing up for some guy who was being punished. He was always going, you know, tooth and nail with the company. And so, you know, he, he didn't tell me, he said, until she, when she said that, look at Ozzy, he's a sucker for the tobacco company. I said, you're right, I'm gonna quit. And she said, well, can I have that pack of cigarettes? And he said, what do you mean, it weighs 35 cents? And he smoked that pack of cigarettes and he never smoked again, never. So 25 years, four packs a day, that's heavy duty. But then he lived through 92. So, you know, you don't smoke for 50 years, you're probably okay. And uh, he said to me, I never once before that moment thought about quitting. That's what he said. And he had my, I have two cousins, he had a six year old daughter and a 12 year old son, whatever, you know. So, well, why, why did my uncle Ozzy quit smoking? There's a lady he worked with said eight words to him. Why did he quit? What happened? <clears throat> and what value was going on there? What value was my Uncle Ozzy? What's that? The principal political yeah. statement. Yeah. Yeah. My uncle was highly politicized. Yeah. And so that lady sort of got the key to the right value. And you know, of course you can say, you mean he wasn't political until that lunch? That makes no sense. It was somehow that she would allow him to make that connection to a value that was kind of really crucial to him. His whole life kind of was organized around that. And somehow she was able to service it for him by just saying eight words, you know, look at Uncle Ozzy's, is it eight, whatever, 12, suffer for the tobacco companies. And that was unbearable to him. And so it was sort of like, well, I'm going to quit smoking or I'm going to die. It was just that important to him. So, you know, you sort of sit there and think, here's a guy smoking four packs of cigarettes a day, smoking in the car with his kids. What a bum. And then the next day, you know, he quit and everybody's going, look at Ozzy. Quit smoking. What a, what a man. What control. So you can never, the fact that a human being hasn't, um, express their values doesn't mean A, that they don't have those values, that B, they can't be surfaced, and that C, they can't abide by them. So one literature I read about, I don't think you have it, I think I, I asked Liam, 
You don't have wet housing here, do you? Not in Galway, but we would have in different parts of the country. So, you know, I, they do interviews with people when they have given them wet housing. And people have, they have values, you know, I mean, they're not in a good place. But they say, you know, I want to live a good life. Um, I want to respect myself. You know, I don't want to mess up everything in my life. People have those values in them. It just takes the kind of certain amount of skill sometimes to navigate around them and get them out. So, you know, a values approach, it always works. It's always, always works. It's always worth exploring. And because a person's not prepared to express their values at point A, doesn't mean that that's still not a really powerful tool at point B. And even if you're talking with them about their values and they're still struggling to make them work, it's still worth doing. So a, another place that I, I'm on the board of a place called Above and Beyond. I do have some kind of work a little bit like yours. Well, I'm only on the board. It's in um, inner city Chicago. And uh, it's a man named Brian Cressy. He's some kind of famous billionaire investor. He set up <clears throat> uh, an open access recovery family, family recovery center. <clears throat> and, you know, his concept was what we talked about, well, what, what Pauline talked about, the people that require the most resources get the fewest resources. So he opened up a place that does that. And... You know, at the board meetings, I'll have a guy come in, you know, and they're homeless. They've been on, they've been addicted for years. They're not people in a good place. But still, you know, a guy will say, well, I really want to reconnect with my grandson. You know what I mean? And, you know, then you go, you know, how's it going? And, well, I didn't see him this month. But, you know, it's still very much on his mind. It's still something he's very much wants to pursue. Possibly you'll never see his grandson, but it's an ideal that really keeps him motivated and keeps him going. The one thing you're doing, the problem I have, so I don't usually, when I came here, uh, the first thing Shane said, well, the first thing Shane talked about was the letter that woman wrote an email about me speaking Trinity. Then this, when we showed up this morning, he goes, you're wearing a tie and suit. I thought you'd be wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt. And the reason I'm wearing a suit is because above and beyond, I had a fundraiser. And the CEO called me up and said, you know, Stanton, you have to have a formal suit. This is not the mayor's going to so I went out and I bought a suit. So I'm wearing it here because how many times am I going to wear a suit? So I figured, well, I'll do this. So when I went to the fundraiser, you know what? They're doing a really valuable thing. And Ryan Cressy understands those four pillars. He understands these are people who need a home, health, a purpose. They do education and job and community. He understands that. 
what what they don't have they don't have a treatment program they don't have a clinical director they don't actually they have groups they have they have AA they have smart they don't have any skills training groups so I I have mixed feelings about them do you, do you think do you have a training program do you have an actual training method treatment program as a part of your work I suppose just being the addiction counselor going into meeting people in clinics as I'm trained humanistic humanistic intricately and I think that Sarah kind of connected to yesterday it's like you're reading Victor Frankl to me you know there's an awful lot of what his basis of his theory is is exactly what you're stating in this is meaning purpose and value system in life Brian put it pretty well. Brian said, well, these are our goals, to have these things. And those things, well, it's sort of a little obvious. They purposely help them with their education. Housing is, housing is housing. You know, these are homeless people. But I, I feel they miss having an actual treatment program and treatment philosophy. I suppose for... for for me, I'm coming in doing clinics. A lot of the external supports that are out there are treatment, rehabilitations, detoxes that are available in Ireland. And I suppose I'm supporting clients to see where they are to even get to that place and what, what where they want to go with it. Not, when they come and see me, I'm not going to say... Well, that's the same thing. Above and Beyond offers like a bunch of but my is a menu of different kinds of programs. My training would have been very much on that. And, and they have general counselors. They have interns from local universities. But I, I feel that falls short. And here's what made me really feel it, feel it felt short. They had... They, Brian Cressy is a high roller. There were a lot of rich people at this. It was at the Drake Hotel. So I guess I've never been to a fundraiser. They raised $600,000. The mayor was there. And they had a speaker. And the speaker's name is Brian Leaf. And he's an ex-football player who became addicted to pain pills. And so he spoke. And he's a good-looking guy. He's a good speaker. But I felt that his, uh, the values that he expressed, and he's a recovery kind of guy, I don't, you know, they weren't consistent with where I thought the program was. For example, he told one of those typical recovery stories where one guy he knew, he, he said he was addicted to pills, but he put alcohol in with that. One guy he knew, um, you know, had, he drank and he ended up dead. That's a typical recovery story, you know. They, this, he goes, you don't have control over what happens after you drink. That's their story. You only have control about when you first take that first drink. You know, I'm sitting in the audience, you know, and I'm thinking, well, I don't believe that. And do we believe that? Does above and beyond believe that? Because, you know, these guys are out in the street. 
they're going to take drugs again a lot of times. Do we really believe that after that happens? And so I started fantasizing about doing an intervention with the board and, and saying, well, do we have any basic principles? Do we, do we believe in harm reduction? Now, this is a private agency. So, you know, well, does your agency believe in harm reduction? Is that a real thing? Mm. I suppose we're, I suppose as, an, as agencies, and we, we both yeah. work in similar agencies, harm reduction, I suppose it's what, whatever works for the person where they're doing less harm to themselves. Yeah. For some person, some people might not ever get to a place of being fully abstinent. Oh, for sure it won't get to that place. So, and it might even reduction. not get to a place where they cut back that much. So, I believe that's what people think on site, but we've got a bunch of rich people, hundreds, thousands, two thousand people in this ballroom, and I'm thinking, well, what do we believe in? What are our principles? Does everybody on the board share those principles? And what does it mean that the speaker doesn't express those principles? And what does it mean that we're not educating the public about what we believe in? Because in America, maybe more than Ireland, you know, harm reduction is a hard sell. In America, you know, everybody's heard of AA in America. Everybody thinks, well, that's what you do when you go for alcoholism. That's just it. So, do, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, do we have an obligation to try and tell them that we think differently? I mean, they're giving a ton of dough. And everybody knows that we're trying to help people in the inner city. Everybody can figure that out, that it's not, we're not helping professional football players. So why they got a professional football player to speak, I don't know. And do we have, do we have any values that are sacred to us that we wouldn't violate, that we would just... And the other thing I thought about Brian Leave was, I talked to the CEO, he came to the treatment center that morning. He was late. When he got there, he ate breakfast. You know, he didn't really, 7,000 bucks they paid him. He didn't really care. He doesn't give a shit about these people. So to me, it's sort of like, like one of those books, like uh, he's not really into you. You know, you're having a relationship with somebody who doesn't care about you. So I thought it was degrading myself. So um, I was wondering how I could do an intervention at the board meeting. And, you know, I was going to say, um, well, I, the board is a bunch of people there like this. I was going to say, you know, start at the basics. Do we believe in harm reduction? Well. Do you know what harm reduction is? I mean, some of the people know, but some of the people are like business people. I, do you know what harm reduction is? Are we a harm reduction organization? What is harm reduction? How do we practice harm reduction? Why do we think it's good? What is our organization's values? Do you feel everybody's on board in your organization? Yeah, we are. We are lucky. Yeah, we all work yeah. consistently. You're lucky yeah, people. Absolutely, yeah. Because I don't really know what kind, they have counselors there, but they're from their interns. I don't know what they believe in. So that, that's really an, 
that you have values clarity in your own organization and that you all are on board, that's a wonderful <clears> thing. Because uh, we don't have it. We have, at the Light Process Program, we have it pretty much. All the people that we train, we really know. But that's often not the case. Are, are harm reduction values countywide? Does everybody kind of get on board? Does everybody? What organization do you work for? I'm retired at the moment. I've come from a nursing background. She's retired at the moment, Stan, so she comes from a nursing background. So what's your, you just want to find out about things? Yeah. How about you? What's your organization? I'm a teacher with an organization called the GRETB. But what's I, that? I, it's um, an education board. They're my employers, Stanton. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they run schools and other things. And my job is I work with traveler families. And you work with traveler families? Yeah. Are they like what they call gypsies? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You've got a group, yeah. population of travelers. Yeah, they're Irish travelers. You don't have that in New York. I'm not aware of that. But go on. So, so they would live in a very different um, environment than the settled Irish people. And I'm just listening to you talking about the, you know, does your organization have the same set of values? And I'm just wondering, are there values that the organization have? Are they going to be the same as the clients who come in? What's the answer to that? Well, I can't imagine that they are. What's the difference between the organization and the clients? Well, I suppose individually we all have different values because we're going to all have different attitudes to life. But um, I would imagine that if you're struggling and have been struggling and if you see life as a struggle as opposed to a professional person who can see a kind of a goal or a different... You know, the, the values will be adapted around the individuals that come into us. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and I, I like to... Well, let me... Oh, sorry. Can you restate your organization's values in such a way that it supports the client's values, even if the client's values are different? Yeah, I, I would... Like how? That. Tell do that for me. Yeah, how? Um, well, say what. Well, I suppose a value would be just basic happiness, to just have a have a peaceful day, yeah. and to to feel respected, I suppose, yeah, yeah and to feel love for your children. So and because I'm working with, because I. So um, you're respecting their values, whatever they are, and trying to mm -hmm. adapt. Yeah, they'd be at the center of our plan, and their values would be our concern, even if they're not theirs. Mm. Right. So we would work. Yeah. Is that hard to do? Or did that take some practice to learn to do that? We'll tailor our approach to someone's needs, how they are presenting. So, yeah, they're at the center of that. So that, that's the key to kind of motivational interviewing, mm -hmm. is that you don't they impose... values, but we may have values that we may think that they should have, yeah. but they may not be at that point yeah. just yet. So we have to always remain focused on that they may not be where we think they should be and we have to meet them where they're at and meet the mm -hmm. values at that time. So that's, I mean, the joke that I always make getting back to my Uncle Ozzy is, oh, so we need to form a new group instead of teaching people to worship a higher power, to be communist, because the joke is, he's a communist, that motivates him, but that's not a general training principle, that's a, where Uncle Ozzy is at. And so our skill job is to be able to elicit and identify people's values 
So that I suppose that's what we do. It's person-centered. Yeah. Very close. You know, it's, it's very client-centered approach. And um, you find, do you, does that present difficulties for you? Not at all. It's very much in my value, my own value-based system. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, definitely. We meet people where they're at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to meet them where they're at. We put an environment in place that they're yeah. possibly able to make changes in their lives, but, but they're not defined. The person isn't defined by their homelessness. Mm. You know, they mm. you know they would have had lives outside of that. You know, yeah. before they come into us. Yeah. So self-efficacy and agency mm. are underlying values. They're they sort of are values that say this person is going to be helped to attain what they want, but it's not plugging in what they want. So is that part yeah. of the answer to your question? Yeah, it or? does. Yeah. Or do you still think, do you still imagine that being hard to do? Is it still... Well, um, what, what I would come across would be um, families that have been affected by addiction. So the family is affected by the addiction. So the, very often it's the addicted person who gets the main help. Now, I know families are involved in it, but um, in situations I'm thinking of, the, um, the addiction may not even be in the household. The addiction may have been may have gone, but the family has been, you know, for maybe three generations, been affected by addiction. Do you work with the whole family? Yeah, but it, it's very difficult because the answer will be something like, no, that's not how we do it. No, that's not how we do it. How do, you're told that's not how you do it? Yeah, no, that's not the way we are. I, you know, it'd be a bit like if an American was to come into Ireland and try and tell us how to do something, you know, as an Irish person, we said, that's how you do it in America, but that's not how we do it. And so with this ethnic group, there is that feeling of, that's not how we do it, you know. So, but the, but it, it does cause a lot of problems, you know, with children, especially teenagers in school. The behaviour can be quite erratic, and and it's all it's called kind of from an emptiness, really. It makes you emotional. Yeah. We're developing a family. I'm a great admirer of the original CRA. And I, we're developing a family component for the life process group. And the guy who's doing it's a man named Zach Rhodes and me. And he works as a child developmental specialist with kids. And um, we just wrote a book called Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy. And I just got Robert Miner, I'm not making this up, this week to write a blurb for it. And in the book, we have a section about where craft doesn't work. Mm. Bob Miner's a pretty nice guy. He wrote me, I do anything I can to support you, Stanton. But this, is, this one section, you know, I think you got a few things wrong. And the difference we feel between what we do and Kraft does is this. And Kraft to me is very much like Al-Anon. Well, for one thing, Kraft, its bottom line in America is to get somebody into treatment. That's what they do. And we're going, so our, what we're trying to do is to enhance the family's resources going forward to be able to deal with, let's say it's a kid with a drug problem, 
to deal with that whole family thing. We're, we're thinking we're strengthening the whole family. Is, is that a little bit what you're saying? Yes. And that's not what Kraft describes its goal as. They, their bottom line is going to be, well, treatment and Al-Anon's the same, protect yourself. It's not about helping the whole family. So I don't, I don't think, so Bob, so we wrote, we had a table, and we said, um, we think, um, environment is right. People could then can concentrate a bit more on things. Right. You know? I'm interested in what you talked about. It's, it's the note we had in class, obviously, the addition, but the um, taking the responsibility. You know, just because I'm an addict doesn't mean I'm stupid. You know, so when I tell you to fuck off, or I decide not to wash for three weeks, or decide to drive the car. You know, you know, back in the day. It was the, you know, the moral judgment was, you know, uh, it's his fault. And then at some point that all shifted. You know, you talked about that this morning where then it was around the addiction that, you know, they're helpless. They can't help themselves. What's your feeling on all of Well, that? so in a way, maybe what you're challenging me in saying is, is the values approach a little bit like the old moral responsibility approach? That is a tricky one. Um, so, um, uh, so I have a client, and uh, she has a daughter, and she's you know been in, she she does pain pills, and she's been in and out of therapy. We have a hundred, a lot of times, well-off families, they'll have been in, they'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in the United States in going to these places. And this is before the woman met, talked with me. So at one point she says to her uh, daughter, you know, I'm going to let you go to a halfway house. You can come in. And this, this is a little bit of craft. You can come home many times, you know, you're not stoned and talk. But uh, I'll help you pay the rent on your own place for two months. And then say la vie. Now this is a way involved mother, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She's not a derelict mother. Yeah. And, you know, it does sound like tough love. But it was her judgment that her daughter... And this ended up being a happy story. The daughter just graduated with a nursing degree, and they're very close. But she had to make a choice at some point to say, and there's a little bit of craft in there, but, you know, you're going to have to live by yourself here. You know, the girl wasn't a dole. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like tough love, but, you know, you're saying anytime you're trying to find help and you're doing what, you know, you're working or going to school, I'll help you. But if not, I can't. Because, you know, it's just going to tear the rest of the family apart, which is a craft thing. So, it does sound a little bit like the old values model. You know? You're going to have to be morally responsible for doing that. So, um, that's a that, as a therapist, that's sort of a hard thing to do sometimes, to tell people, you know, 
you're going to make a choice. Yeah. You're going to live by that choice. Just think about it. I'm going to help you think about it. But you're going to have to live by that choice. And that comes up a lot, you know, if you're going to get divorced, if you're going to leave your family. People are always doing all kinds of things. Yeah. All I want you to do is to think all the angles. And I don't want you to feel bad at the end of all of this. But... You know, it's your life. That's a hard thing to do. And parents sometimes have to learn to do that with children. And it's my belief that parents are less and less able to do that with their children in America. I don't, people don't do that. Do you have children? So, I mean, I, one thing I see all the time now that is... Children that never de-individuate from their parents. Mm. That happens in America. It's like a whole thing. People now move to the college communities where their kids go to college. Yeah. <laughs> so you go, huh? People here just try to make the move away. Close the door. By the way, when you come back, we'll have somebody else living in your room. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Africa and America starts creeping over here, you know. So people do that, and they're not able, you know, people who themselves have been through, sometimes people who have been through a lot of duress themselves, have almost the, you would think, these are people who must appreciate, who they've overcome a ton, they must really appreciate independence in their children, but they often have the craziest opposite reaction. Yeah, it's like trying to provide what they didn't get, yeah, and they overcompensate. So how do you, yeah. do you know what that's like? Do you have you, the thing I'm talking about? Mm. Have, you seen, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that kind of thing? Do you know what I'm speaking about? So do you have any, have you had to deal with that kind of a situation where the parents refuse to allow the child to be their own human being? Um, the population I work with are all over 18. But I suppose where I would see that a little bit would be I work on a mental health team and sometimes as I would rather the, we enable the patients a little bit more and the doctors would rather, I suppose, disable them a bit more with medication and stuff and there's always a bit of a battle between us and the medics. Clients to be more independent? Yeah, I think we disable them a little bit sometimes. Is there a way? It's sort of like weaning your client kind of a thing. How do you help a client by making them more independent? And is there a contradiction in, well, I'm helping them, so how are they more independent if I'm helping them? How do you give help in a way that encourages the individual to be more independent? Is that a, is that a guidance? You guide the person. You give them the information yeah. and the support, yeah. and then you let them go in that direction that they choose to go in. They might kind of encourage of the way of the journey, that you know then they're safe to do. And sometimes it doesn't happen because they have to come back and then you go and you try it again. So you're always available. Yeah, but you don't punish them for what you think was not the correct choice or correct decision. They may come back themselves and say, well, I chose to do this, but it didn't work. Can we try again? But it's a leap of faith where you're sort of telling the person, 
you know, you're going to have to go out and live or die, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, well, it's a hard thing to do, but here's my way of thinking about it. children. My, remember my value, remember I asked him what his biggest value was with his kids, you know. And people say, oh, I want them to be nice people, but I, my value is agency. That, because I think if your kids aren't their own person, then you're not a parent, you know what I mean? They can't be your child forever. That just can't happen. And so, you know, at some point, you know, you have to let them do that, and it takes a leap of faith, and it's possible a bad thing can happen. But if my value is, if you don't give them that choice, if they don't end up being independent, that's already the worst thing that can happen. So... That's it. Yeah. Two things, Stanton. One being around what you were saying earlier on about the values of an agency. Okay, and if we talk about values, um, or we talk about what's important to people, you know, what they what they prize. So similar language, you know, what they value, what they prize, what they're. Well, I guess the question I would ask back with above and beyond their principles and their values. Are they the same thing? I guess they are. What do we believe? If principles and values are the same thing. I think they are. If right? they are, then it's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, sometimes. Well, sometimes I mean, those are just synonyms. I guess the question is, do they have principles? Does everybody in the organization know what the principles are? Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I'm not afraid to do is to ask the stupidest questions of all. You know, I, I don't mind going to a harm reduction organization and saying, uh, what is harm reduction? Mm. You know, sometimes you ask the stupidest questions and yeah. you get the most amazing answers. Do they know what it is? Do they believe it? And do they practice it? And do they propagate it? They believe in their values enough to tell other people this is what we stand for. Is that true of your agency? I work for the health service executive for the HSE, so the main public health care provider. So I think there's like 80,000 employees or something like that. So that's not true for What's my organization. True? But within my uh, service, within the organization, my department, that it's a drug service, and we say, yet yeah, we're a harm reduction service. Well, that's we, good. We aim, aim for that. You can't ask for a ton more than that. But, yeah. You can't ask for the Irish government to be harm reduction. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. But, well, 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 you can. That is the course of national strategy. That's the national them? policy. Well, you see, one of the problems, that, and Butler will talk better about this, is that uh, in the 1996 rabbit report that he referenced, uh, harm reduction was stated in the national policy, but it came in through the back door without ever having any open discussion, any grown-up discussion about what is harm reduction. So on the one hand, it was good in that it's on the agenda, it's on the po uh, policy, but because of the lack of public uh, discourse, it's stymied the development of any kind of harm reduction, either at a, a, you know, the ethos or even services, and fundamentally it hasn't impacted the way it should in terms of increasing people who use drugs' rights, essentially, is what our production of the tenants. And that's going to be, that's a hard sell. 
when you, you know, well, we're teaching people to use drugs right, you know, sure. I mean, they do have places in New York that teach people how to inject heroin, and, you know, so you don't get an infection. <clears throat> and, okay, it's, that can be a tough one to explain to the, um, the committee, the yes. city governing committee. But you see, I have a little problem in life, well, more than one, but um, I'm the original harm reduction human being. But as I was saying today, harm reduction organizations now all today believe, well, we should come back with pharmaceuticals, and MAT is the solution for addiction. You know, giving people Suboxone solves addiction. And, you know, I gave a lecture today. I don't believe that. I, because even the harm reduction, their goal was harm reduction, by which they mean, you know, non-abstinence approaches to treatment. My goal is for people to become self-reliant in their lives. And for me, the medical model is the antithesis of that. For the major harm reduction organizations in the United States, they see the medical model as being a key to harm reduction. Well, we'll give them Suboxone. That's not abstinence. They'll make fun of AA and abstinence groups. But what they're doing instead is totally not, you know, you know, I see that as a transition being method on and all that. That's not personal agency for me. So in my little life, I get as much opposition now as when I was famous for being against AA. People would say, well, um, Shane, well, I hadn't seen Shane, I don't think, in 20 years. He said, oh, when he came and spoke at Trinity, I got an email from a lady at Hazelton. And she said, I can't believe you're letting Staten Peel talk at your organization. And then what kind of a man are you and what kind of a department do you have at Trinity to allow him? So that was a, and I got worse messages than that in the 80s. But now, the people that would be thought to be my allies, like in harm reduction, are, are similarly opposed to me. Because I'm not, well, I went to a party and I talked to the medical director, and I say, you know, prescriptions are going down, the drug tests are going up. This isn't working. And it's just like in AA days, she'll say, well, I know somebody. We got them off prescription drugs, and they're really doing well. And I say, yep, yeah, in New York State, more people are dying. Look at it. It's not like I made this up yesterday. So I guess my role is to be the permanent opposition. And um, it's partly to do with being in the United States. In America... People are never going to be okay with people taking drugs or things like that. You know what I mean? Suboxone is like a medicine. People are okay with people taking medicine. I don't know if I finished my thought. In, so seven cities have proposed having drug injection sites. 
And the um, Trump administration says, that's never going to happen, you know. We're never going to let that happen. You can forget that. And the United States took 10 years to do clean needles. So, uh, you know, my basic principles are opposed to the primary goals of that organization. So I feel I'm a little bit closer in tune, you think, with your way of, I mean, there are people in uh, your organization that think about things more my way, would you say? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I don't, uh, I think there's always going to be nuanced differences, even if we, we're never going to perfectly marry together. Like, there would be some things that you said today that you know well, and that's why you said them, that I wouldn't agree with, right? I think you objected to them when I said them. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Um, well, I think by and large, you know, uh, for, for me, it's, it's uh, just the ability to, to question this kind of like um, the, the kind of go common uh, beliefs that are out there. Like, like for example, you said in, in the States, uh, and for a large portion of the population here too, so Johnny is drinking too much, he needs to go to AA, is the common wisdom, which isn't that wise at all, actually, because that, that might actually do Johnny more harm than good. Um, particularly if he doesn't get on with the, the kind of ethos of, of the AA. Now Shane said AA on his, he said AA is a big <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, he, I think what he was saying was in terms of the, the influence that they would have had uh, in promoting the disease concept here in Ireland, it would have been short-lived and very limited because I've, I've kind of seen the responses uh, in an official capacity that the AA have responded to the question, do you guys buy into this disease concept? And they come back with this really balanced uh, answer saying, but to be honest, we're not going to get into that. All we're interested in doing is providing this space for people who have this shared goal, and that is lifelong sobriety. That's it. So in that way, they're quite, they're quite balanced. Um, and I mean, for me, I, I wouldn't say that I'm anti-AA. I'm glad it's there. It's not my cup of tea, but I have worked with people that actually have life-changing kind of like results of that. But I accept that the, the, the success rate is believed to be around about 5%. But then I'm going to say that will be the same with any um, modality. Well, I guess the problem with AA and five percent is after they fail, AA has nothing else to do for them. Absolutely sure. And what we yeah. have, but I think where you and I agree <clears throat> most in America, what's the worst thing about the medical treatment model is is it's going to fix people without dealing with their lives. That's where you and I are most in agreement. We Definitely, and, and I think we would both agree as well that. If you get somebody to believe that you've got a chronic relapsing condition, you've just disempowered empowered them for the rest of their life. If they so you and I, that's, we're 99% yeah. I spoke to, I spoke to, I was in the work this morning, spoke to a guy um, as I was walking out the door and I was telling him I was coming to this meeting, or coming to this training, and he's an AA member. Um, he's in our service at the moment. And I explained to him about, you're thinking around in AA. And he turned around and he says, do you know what, he says, uh, Every morning I get up, I say the prayer, and all it does is it reminds me of alcohol. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me this morning, hey, you got a spare ticket. <laughs> you know. uh, so so that, the know, fact that they're actually human beings who believe this, and you know, and Pauline's whole presentation was you have to integrate services, to me that's like a gift from heaven. Mm. We, don't, we don't have that in the United States. People, I mean, I'll be honest with you though, we don't have much of that in this country as well. well. So I would have to say Cool Mine is fairly stand out there in terms of the treatment. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Unfortunately, in Ireland as well, we have a treatment modality in a couple of areas whereby it is 
uh, a 13 week program yeah. based on religion, yeah. based on different religion, where people yeah. are centered there, they're staying there, they're detoxed in there, they stay there, do a program, they come out there from daily life skills, mm -hmm. they don't know where they're going, they don't understand what life is all about. And mm. now I know there's, it works for some, but this, there's no one here in Ireland that will push things. And, and I think, you know, uh, again, doing because I did the Masters uh, under Shane Butler, and he spoke a lot about that, and it's this whole concept of, you're right, most of the uh, residential treatment providers in this country do have religious roots, yeah. and there's another really big problem, and that's subsidiarity. So the government see that, oh, I see the nuns over there, and they're running a treatment, uh, we'll fund them piecemeal when it suits us, but the bottom line is we don't have to do anything about it now because they are. And so you're right, it's not pushed, it's, it just perpetuates. And, and then you've got people who will attend those types of treatment centres, they will then ascribe to their school of thought in terms of their, they will get addiction training from them, then they will come back to work for them. So this kind of idea that this is the only way perpetuates, and, and that's what they do, it's hammered into people. It's an industry now. But just because they're religious based doesn't mean that they work to religion, just from my experience with it. But I mean, if you talk about specific rehab centres like Coonwara, I'll name it here in the room, you do, you get up in the morning at 7 o'clock, you go to Mass, men on this side, women on this side, you do not look at each other in the eye. But say Foxford, Hope House, which yeah. is run by nuns, that's not got any religious faith. Yeah, and they will send their people on, if the people are willing, they can go on then to a, a, a secondary house in Navin, where they do have, um, you know, they can claim the dole, the social welfare, so they can do a CE scheme and they get life skills and they have to keep house and they have to make their own meals and such like. Yeah. So there is, it is there. But you know yeah, those things are industries. I would have heard, I remember a couple of years ago um, there, it on the radio, two yeah. different centres. It was like, we'll do it in 28 days. Well, we'll do it in 26 days. Yeah. We'll have you in 28 days. We'll have you in 28 days. What's your Why are you smiling? Or is it just that uh, candy you're sucking? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I think that you get out of it whatever you put into it. And I think some patients will talk about the religious aspect of it and, and we find talking some about residential treatment and the religion thing for them I know that I'm well in different places and that might be they're not interested in what I'm suggesting. But, but I think the bottom line for us as treatment people is to me, you can't be a treatment person. Some people will go for religion and some people go for communism, but you can't be a treatment person if you can only go for one thing. You know what I mean? If you say, oh, you have to be religious, and the person says, well, I'm not religious, and they say, oh, sorry. Uh, being a professional therapist means that you can go with a variety of approaches. Yeah, you these places you, that, you know what I mean? I think um, Irish people are well able to think outside the box. And we yeah. were talking about AA today, and I said we both agreed it's not for everybody, and especially in this day and age with that religious aspect and the greater power, and it's out of your control. But I actually know somebody, and it was very successful for her. And she said, any time they went on about the greater power and they looking in to, to, to believe in the powers that be, she said, I looked into my heart and I felt it was there somewhere. And I just got rid of all of that. She believes in nothing. But that's asking people a lot. That's asking people a lot to say, she adapted. oh, we're going to tell you therapy, but you have to rearrange it in your yeah. mind. That's yeah. making them go in extra yards. And it's personal yard. choice. Yes. And fair play. But yeah. in these, what... Oh, I know. Yeah. You are forced to go to Mass. You are forced. You do not have freedom of choice. You know, and I, I'm very anti that. Very. 
But in the rooms themselves, you're not forced. Because the rooms are run by the rooms. No, the rooms are run by the groups, the yeah. area themselves. Like, that's well, the actually, you see, that's, that's another kind of a bit of a complicated thing, right? So again, the AA is, is very balanced in, in the, the way it kind of comports itself. But what you find is that individual groups are all going to be distinctly different based on the personalities that are in there. Yes. So there are so many mm. rooms that you will go into and you will be told it is a disease, even though the fellowship itself has a more balanced um, kind of like take mm. on that. Well, that gets back to a question. Does an organization have principles? Mm. Do people believe in them? Mm. Do they agree with them? This is the part that I wanted to just raise the question about earlier, Stanton, was the values of values are what's important. Uh, yeah, well, principles, whatever, whatever the whatever the the uh, whatever word you want to use on it, but we'll call it values for now. The values of an organization. Yeah. First of all, if they're clear, because sometimes they're not clear. So if they're clear. Secondly, then that gets mediated by the staff that are working there because just because an organization has a value or a principle, the staff that are working there may not hold that and will have certainly will have differing slants on that value. And then the people who are attending that service may be only attending it because it's the only service they can access. And it doesn't, a, it doesn't fit with their values. There's a big difference between a client and a professional. Yeah. And then there is a question, does an organization have principles, fundamental I, you know, principles? Can an organization function if they don't really believe in certain fundamental principles? Can they? Then, and they, I, I, it depends what you call fundamental. But, um, and then I guess you have to make a choice. If you're going to work for them and say, well, I don't agree with that principle. But for a lot of people who are service users in our service, they come to our service because they have a very short list of places that they can get well, any service said, from. Yes. Yeah. Your job is to respond to their value. They yeah. don't have to believe in the principles yeah. of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. That's your, their job is to just get help. Mm. Now, there's one... Can I, can I come on to my question? <laughs> yeah. That... The idea of, I think, an organization should have, and it's probably, it's probably has to operate between some goalposts, but the organizational value should always be somewhere inverted, that there, it's a value of service. We are of service to these people. Now, maybe we're only of service to people who want sobriety. <laughs> that could be an organization's value. Okay. What do you mean by sobriety? They want to be abstinent from alcohol and all drugs. You know, you sobriety know, like. doesn't mean that. You know. Okay. Sobriety's AA took over the word. Sobriety means not being intoxicated, you know? Okay. So sobriety's actually a harm reduction term. Okay. Remember, I was talking about being careful about languages. Yeah. In America, they'll say about somebody, mm. they're not sober. And they mean they took one drink. That's yeah. what they mean. Yeah. You don't mean okay. that, do you? Yeah. No, I don't mean that. So be careful. So in terms of that, okay? That this organization here, that's their value to have all people abs who come to their service abstinent from alcohol and other drugs. Fine. We get all the time, though, that those values of that organization, those values of service to people, get messed with by the staff because they're not actually following through on right. what the values of the organization is. 
Yeah. So they're not meeting their own basic principles or values. They're not. They're not. By so the way, another way that comes out in the United States is 12-step rehabs in AA are constantly saying now that they practice motivational interview. Mm. And how could that be? Yeah. They don't let you come in and say, yeah. well, I, my goal is control drinking. Yeah. So that shows kind of inauthenticity, mm. which means that they're not really, they don't even believe, they're not standing by their own values. Mm. Probably because kind of everybody, even in the United States, everybody kind of knows that's not going to be 100% yeah. workable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that gets back to Shane saying, well, things are changing, you know. AA is still in charge in America, but people are aware everybody's not going to quit drinking, you know. So if that's, that's some of the way that the values don't get translated down to the ground. And well, sometimes really, in a way that's... So what, you know, aren't you inclined to say to a 12-step rehab, you're not motivated, aren't you inclined to confront them with that? You're not motivational interviewing as I understand it? Isn't that your reaction? That's my reaction. That's pretty common. I mean, like people will say, oh, I, you know, I'm trained in this, I'm trained in that, I'm trained in the other, as if they do it so all, what do you, all what the time. So what do you say to people when they say that to you? I mean, you know, you don't have to get a fight every day on my behalf, but what do you say to them? Well, if people say that they're doing it, unless I see evidence otherwise, I kind of go, okay, well, it's good that you're doing that. But uh, most of the time, then, you know, you talk to service users or people who've been to that service or whatever, then they say, that's not what happened to me while I was there. So I can recount that to people. Like you know, Marie's point a minute out. ago where you she said... You allow people that, to be controlled drink or moderate your drinking? I just, that, I yeah. can't help myself. Yeah. I don't believe them. Yeah. Marie's point a minute ago that she made about, you know, people in some rehabs being forced to go to Catholic Mass regardless of what religion they are or what belief that they have, you know? And then the same rehab might say, yeah, well, we practice motivational interviewing and we practice this and we practice that and we believe in autonomy for clients and all of that. So you can point out sometimes that people values what they, what it says on the tin isn't what you get inside. And sometimes you're hoping with the client to make them change, but sometimes with these organizations, they're being yeah. implicit in yeah. Write a letter to the judge and say, I'm an atheist, are you telling me I have to go to AA? And no, no judge is going to write down, yes, everybody understands. But is that to do with the judge's uh, interpretation of what AA is? Because again, not, not, AA... not, by the time the Supreme Court hasn't decided on it, but seven district. Okay. By, by the time all the courts have decided that you're not allowed to be a municipal judge and say, oh, to heck with them, I say it's not religious, because the court's decisions have said, if you violate a person's civil rights, you know, so we're good that way. If you violate a person's civil rights in the United States, you're liable for criminal penalties. A judge can... But in, in, in terms of, now this is again my understanding of the, the higher power <coughs> concept in, in AA, is that it's not... The courts, that's what's great about courts. Religious. That's what's be, great. I mean, People always that say that. Tripod there. The courts say... All the court decisions read, well, we know AA is very effective, we know people love it, but when you say to people, uh, you have to go to a higher power, we count that as religion. Okay. You know, that's just religion. You know, it's not, you can debate it, but that's, you know, you can't tell people to turn themselves over a higher power. 
But isn't it sad in Ireland that if a person like Brendan Hedgehog is trying to, trying to say that, and yourself I think you, that if someone hadn't got another place to go, okay, and their family were forced them into a treatment facility, and that treatment facility is forcing religion on them. How do you feel about religion personally? Would you feel? <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I sense, uh, you know, a kind of, I agree with you 100%, you know, but uh, you don't like that, huh? I mean, people being forced into religion. No, because, I mean, what are those, the, the person in there is resenting their treatment We're straight right. away. They're resenting because they're being forced. If not, they have to get out. Well, and there's no clinical explanation you can make. One job I had is that a doc, here's the thing that happens in America. It happened, a doctor gets caught, whatever, you know, pilfering pills or drunk driving. They have a board. The board is always made up of guys in AA. And they say to the guy, the doctor, you have to go to a rehab. And the rehabs are all 12 step. And the doctor, let's say he's like a neurosurgeon, you know, he's making in America a ton of dough. And he goes, okay, whatever. And he goes there and he sort of thinks, well, whatever. And then they say, you know, you know, you have to believe in a higher power. And the guy says, well, you know, I don't know. That's not the way I roll. And then they say, well, we're going to kick you out and take your medical license. Then they have to hire me. Because the guy said, that can't be right. You know, you don't go in and get surgery. And they say, what do you think, a higher power? You know, I'm a surgeon. And so then, when I would make a case, well, he would have to have a lawyer because it's usually in another state. The two arguments you make is, is this board a state representative? In which case, they're breaking the law. And the second thing I say is, how is, where do, they have something called informed consent in America. You know that concept? Yes, yes. That's where you say, well, we can do A or we can do B. Which do you want to do? You're, you have to tell people that. And ironically, the only place in the world where that didn't take place was like addiction treatment. They say, well, we have A and you're going to do A. So it's clinically, the reason they have informed consent is because in general, people are going to do better when they say, oh, I want to do this. That's just the way life works. And it's in therapy, doubly so. If you just say, well, what do you want to do? Then you're more in motivational interviewing. And if the person doesn't do it, you say, Oh, I thought you wanted to do this. Well, if you don't want to do this, what do you want to do? Well, we can do the other thing if you want. That's your motivational key. So there's one... See, I, for, it's hard to describe my life. When I come to an organization like this, you know, basically nobody attacks me. So uh, uh, it's almost like I have to say, Oh, God, what's this? Most places I go, people attack me. But nobody here has mentioned the one thing I'm most attacked for in the United States currently. What I'm, well, aside from MAT, that's a whole new thing. In America, everybody's totally into trauma therapy, which is you get traumatized when you're young and it rearranges your brain, then you're a drug addict for. And all to me, and the man most associated with that, is a man named Gabor Monte. And so if you kind of search and Google for Gabor Monte, my name comes up next. Because, you know, <laughs> and Gabor Monte is giant. Everybody loves Gabor Monte. He's got that 
sexy Austrian accent, you know. Everybody loves him. Good-looking guy, you know. And everybody likes trauma therapy, but all the data show. There's no data that doesn't show. Sitting around and talking about your trauma doesn't work to get people better. That doesn't happen. All the data show that forward planning, you know, how am I going to deal, give coping skills, purpose, all the same stuff works for everybody. I mean, you can't, you know, if somebody's been raped, you can't ignore it. But, you know, there's no spending all your time talking about the rape and things getting better. That's just not, doesn't happen. So in the United States, you know, any place I'll go, some people will go, you know, what do you think about trauma therapy? Or what's your argument with Gabor Mate, you know? So, but nobody here says that. Everybody in America says that. <laughs> what's your argument with Gabor Mate? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we all love Gabor. <laughs> now you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> you just lost the room, buddy. <laughs> you're a Gabor Matevian? I don't believe it. No, I'm kind of out of I know, I know. You're, you're pulling, playing with me. But, you know, well, uh, so I say it doesn't work. Well, I have a personal story about Gabor Matevian. Sometimes my life just plays out like a movie if I ever get famous enough. So I had lunch with Gabor Mate in uh, Vancouver. And people thought, well, you know, they'll get together because we both kind of agree. We're both not like you're genetically programmed to be addicted. That we kind of agree on. We have sort of a similar political orientation. And so, you know, at some point he starts, you know, getting into me and all. And then he does this trick he does, which he does at every workshop. That's how I met Zach Rose, the guy I'm writing the book with, went to a workshop. He does the same thing every time. He goes, is there anybody here who's had an addiction who doesn't think that they were traumatized? And some poor idiot raises his hand. <laughs> Gabor Montez, I'm going to let you say, say, oh, I had a happy childhood, the guy says. And then, you know, he'll keep going and go, um, um, well, how'd you get along in school? And he said, you know, I got along pretty well. I wasn't the most popular kid. And then, you know, we'll go, well, did you ever have any negative incidents? And he said, sure. And then, you know, he'll go, um, did you tell your parents? You know, you can't, you're not going to win. <laughs> you can bore Mate up at the front of the class and you being some imbecile in the room. He's going he's gonna to cut you down. And that, you know, Zach sort of was a Gabor Mate fan. He went and he said, well, this can't be therapy to convince people that they had a uh, trauma and they came and they didn't used to think they had a trauma before they got there. So when I had brunch with Gabor Mate, he actually said to me, you know, I sense that you have a deep-seated personal pain that you're not revealing. He's going to pull Gabor Mate on me. <laughs> I say, well, you're kidding me, right? You know, I, I know this trick, you know what I mean? It's just not, it's not going to happen. So I don't think he's an authentic human being. That's what I have against Gabor Mate. So does he believe everybody or just an addict have had trauma? Well, 
he, the, the line he uses in workshops is, is there anybody who feels they've had a significant addiction or mental health problem who feels that they weren't traumatized? Okay. And then he'll work them. And then the audience applauds. I, it's like the, it's like <laughs> you don't the Roman, me. it's like the gladiators. You know what I mean? They're watching this poor schmuck be cut up. Yeah. And they're, I guess they're thinking, thank God, thank God that idiot's not me, you know? I, I suppose what it is is we like to see a cause. We don't like to think something just happened. We, just, yeah. we like to see, you know, a reason for we've been kind of in, yeah, cause and effect. That but there can be this cause. Your, your, your argument is the therapy doesn't work. You know, the person may have had a trauma, but it's sitting around talking about it is going to help it. It's not an effective therapy, and he doesn't even have an effective therapy. He, he doesn't say, oh, now we know you have a trauma, we do X. Yeah. He doesn't have any therapy. He said, well, now you know we have a trauma. Good. So now we've spoken about that. So everybody in America, even the Adama says, well, address traumas. Well, okay. But of course, I mean, one big, I mean, one big issue is, well, is this trauma happening now? That's a whole different thing. Are you in a traumatic situation now? Then you're obligated. To do something about, you know, you're getting raped or beaten now, but that's not, you know. The question is, the question is then, why is everybody not addicted? Right. It's hard. You can't really find a human being that hasn't something that hasn't had something that couldn't be had a trauma and. You can make the argument that people do the best. (laughs) (laughs) People do the best. uh, People do the best when they. I hate to say this, and I say people do the best when they ignore their traumas. I like people. You know, after a while, they explain to you, oh. You know, you know, I was brought up in Russia and I had to escape when I was six or something like that. You know, geez, I never knew that. And they go, you know, I don't talk about it. You know, what's, whatever. That happened. What am I going to do? I got to live a life now. Victor, I like people Victor like Frank, that. Victor Franco. But what if you have a client that is saying that the trauma that impacted them when they were six or seven is causing mm. them to drink or use drugs or gamble? How do you handle that? Well, I talk about, like, at the moment, the drinks, the drugs, are gambling. And then I say, well, I'm going to refer you on to somebody else for the trauma because I can't deal with that. I wasn't present in that moment with you to talk about how you Well, how would you handle but that in motivational about. interviewing? This is, they have those videos of motivational interviewing. So you interview a guy and he goes, uh, uh, you know, I smoke. But, uh, you know, I smoke because I have a very tense job. And then he starts explaining to you how we can't stop smoking. So then the motivational interviewer, you know, it's Bill Miller takes, goes, so then you say, oh, so you won't be able to quit smoking. Then usually the guy says, well, I didn't say that. Then you go, oh, sorry. I thought that's what you were saying to me. So what I wouldn't give up with a client like that, I say, so you're telling me you'll never be able to give up drugs? Well, that's what we do say. We say, in what way can we help? You know, and separate the things. Like, do you feel that you need to speak to somebody about the trauma from before? I can help you work on this piece, and someone else can help you work on this piece. How or do you deal with that, Liam? If somebody, client says, I can't give up drugs because of this trauma, what do you say? 
Um, like to, like uh, Marie has just said, look, I'm not a qualified counsellor and I think they're very clear when I'm interacting with anybody. Um, so to me, on the one hand, look, I, so I can't really safely um, kind of like help them with that traumatic experience um, other than to tell them that, you know, that, okay, it's, you know, we can empathise with and say that that's, that's awful, and, but I'm interested in how, how you've got this far, actually. How, how come you're not drinking more? Oh, you're, uh, you're getting therapeutic. You're, you say you're not a therapist, but those are very therapeutic techniques. You're going, oh, you know, if you trauma is your basic problem, I'm, I'm not the right person to help you. But haven't you already made some progress yourself so far? No, for me, it's a very, it's it's a, it's a strength based and solution focused. That was very important in what Pauline said. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we have to recognise that, and, and we, we we talked about this. But um, when I'm training uh, with uh, Sean Foy um, with the Learning Curve Institute, we do this a lovely exercise, and I think you do something similar about uh, for people who don't get that actually really chaotic drug users and drinkers still have a set of strengths, and we tee it up like on a, on a flip chart like that. And we get the, uh, the, 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 the people in the group to imagine <coughs> that we have to recruit an active, chaotic drug user right now. So we need to put an ad in the local paper. We need to write up the person spec here. So everything has to be positively phrased, no more than the jobs that we've all applied for. So what are those strengths that the person has? So they have to be a good timekeeper, need to have good local knowledge. Have to on your feet. All yeah. of those things, yeah. Like good, good legal understanding and stuff like that. You know, all, all those kind of things. And then you say to them, you know, somebody with these traits, they could actually get a real job. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So strength-based is the most important thing. And of course, trauma is not a strength. You know, trauma therapy is not a strength-based approach. It's like, here's why you're screwed up forever. But there are a lot of techniques where you can reverse that. I like the one he said, including pointing out, well, you're doing pretty well for a person with trauma, aren't you? Um, how did you get this far? Well, would you, but I suppose my question is, if someone keeps bringing up that this is, and you're not getting past it, like, are you essentially buying in to go back to the past with them by sending them then to therapy? or to a counsellor or whatever, it might be a therapist, for that piece that they're saying is holding them back and holding them in their addiction and they can't see past it because this is what well, you always have to give a person a choice and say, mm -hmm. well, look, I don't know if I'm a good person to talk to you about your trauma, if you want to do that, but let's just talk anyhow, as best yeah. we can. You're here for whatever, half yeah. hour, let's just talk. And See if we can make any progress. How do you yeah, deal with that, Colin? Like, you can't stop someone from But you asked that, that, that damn that Bormonte question. What, what the hell are you doing there? Mona Lisa smile. I think, I think it probably depends on, on what they're there for. So I think if the addiction is what they're coming for help with, I think you know the point is to empathize with the experience that they're describing to you and to be present with them in that, but also then to start to, you know, as you were saying, to elicit. So let me just stop. so a good thing to do is to outline what it is they're trying to deal with, and you can say, well, so maybe the trauma is bad for something, but maybe we can deal with this X thing that you're come to me for, no matter. Yeah. So you kind of you would acknowledge it, and I would I would presume that you would say, so how is that impacting on you today? You know, say in your situation, as in the homeless services, how is that impacting on your homelessness? How is that blocking you with your homelessness? So you're kind of keeping it in a in a certain direction that you're familiar with, that you're not going off into full-on counseling person. Well, I'd be inclined to listen to what the person 
So do you think therapists are people who have to deal with a lot of failure? You have to be capable of dealing with a lot of failure and disappointment if you're going to be a therapist. Is that true? What do you mean about yourself? I think you do about yourself quite often. Are you talking about me personally? No, me. I'm you. talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about me. <laughs> no, no, it's not all that. You mean you have to talk about your own weaknesses and problems? No, I mean, I think you have to be conscious of what, of uh, when you've got things wrong. That's, hmm. Well, you have to be resilient. Yeah. You have to not take things personally. No, yeah. You have to be problem, it sounds like a therapy program. You have to be goal-oriented and strengths-oriented. You have to think... <coughs> I don't know that anybody could do any better with this person than I'm doing, you know what I mean? I feel I'm doing the sensible things. I feel I'm making the right moves. I'm giving them free choice. Yeah, those are principles. You have to have principles of practice, and then you have to abide by them and feel that, you know, you're okay. And sometimes the outcomes will come out where they may. Oh, and the other thing, you know, the problem is, then, and some people believe that, but they have really shit skills that they actually can't practice very well with people. They actually do believe, I'm, I'm doing okay, no one could do any better than people, how I do things is pretty good, and they actually treat people pretty badly. Well, what can I tell you, it's called having a job, and... I personally have never had a job, so you know it's a it's a choice you have to make if you're really willing and capable of going out there on your own and just saying, "Well, I'll take the responsibility for practicing my own values." But on the other hand, you know, I I admire a man like Liam who has certain values and he's put plugged them into an organization, um, and the organization to some extent expresses them and they like the work he does, and then he brings in other people to try and expand the horizon of their ideas a little bit more. Is that fair statement? You want to yeah, stretch so. the boundaries? Yeah. That's, you know, and then he's got a job and a wife. But I think for me, um, Brenda, just on that, I think, I think you're right. And uh, one of the things in, in attending the, the updating the, my MI skills this year, uh, one of the big take-home messages for me was, gone is that theory about rolling with resistance. Which implies that it's the it's it's the person on that side of the desk that's actually being resistant, and they replace it with this idea of discord. And it's like, no, hang on a second, isn't that person being resistant, or is it something that I'm doing or not doing? That's basically causing. And are you talking about yourself as an employee in that situation? Or? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I I think it's you're you're on a slippery slope if you think that you know I'm doing perfectly here that I, I am able to master all of this with everybody, and I think. You know, it's, it's back to that kind of thing that you're never going to be able to get on with everybody. We've all had that experience when you walk into a room, the person hasn't even opened their mouth and you go, oh, jeez, I really don't like this person. Yeah. And if that's happening in, a, in a, like a therapeutic or a helping setting, then to be honest, I think you're limited in kind of any kind of effectiveness that you're going to have if, if you don't have that kind of, I think they call it therapeutic alliance, but just that fit between two people, regardless of what model you use. And you're talking about a client yeah. or therapist. Yeah, yeah. Or I think even with, with colleagues, there's some colleagues that you just well, I think don't there's, as a therapist, 
I don't think you're allowed to say, I don't like this person. If you're a professional and somebody's paying you money, flip it on a flip it on its head though, the person comes in to see you. Well then they can go away. Oh absolutely. Then you say, screw this guy, I hate him. There's a free choice. And then when you're in an employee situation, it's good to reflect, well, maybe I'm pissing this person off, but I need this job. You know, you're not, you know, but as a therapist, you're obligated not to reject people, I think. So, you know, that's just the way life goes. You've taken on that job and, you know, you can't say, well, you gotta be religious, or you can't be religious. So, um, what did you hope to gain from my coming to, Galway. Uh, all, all I was really keen to do was, um, in a way, to kind of like figure out, uh, just get a, even like a head count of like, we filled the room successfully here today. Well done. 180 people there or thereabouts, right? And I didn't know, no, honestly, because it's all you. Yeah. He came, he filled the room, right? Um, but for me, it was to try and, and even just have a snapshot of kind of like who's in the room. What is our stance on this whole like addiction area? Um, you know, like, like I, I do, I actually. I, I, <laughs> Great comfort in, in listening to uh, Shane Butler uh, take it apart as well, you know, this idea that it's a social construct. It's this set of human behaviors that for some people become destructive. It's a relatively new phenomenon. They had to call it something, so they called it addiction, right? Um, but that's a little academic, and it's hard, don't you find that's hard for people to translate? Into? I'm not sure. I, I, I give people enough credit to be able to get their heads around that, actually. And, you know, I, and, and again, it was... It was it, the, the main, the fun, if you were to boil it all down, I wanted to put this on, was to kind of showcase that, look, it's, there is no concrete one way to view addiction, really, that, that there's a set of things that you could look to do to maximize potential for positive outcomes. Um, but at the bottom line is, if we're not trying the stuff that research shows is evidence-based, then really, we're kind of, we're pissing into well, the Well, what I say is, if the numbers are going in a bad direction, then we must have to rethink what we're doing. I like to plug into the actual mm. death rates. That's mm. a nice hard number where you can throw graphs. But, but I do wonder if that isn't talking about two separate subjects there, though. Whether that's 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 kind of mixing up the the, the, the public health. Well, at a minimum, the, the, the at a minimum, we're, we're doing is not helping. Mm. You might say, well, we're not the reason for it. Mm. Somebody could say society's really going wrong. Now you notice one thing. Remember that guy, Brian Leaf, his name was, back at um, the football player. That's, and uh, I always try to uh, interact in the here and now with people. You must like that, though. even though I'm sure. the Except, except the yeah, it turns around to bite me in the arse in the middle of one of the naked people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's that's it. She's more than okay. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I Camera's on. Exactly well put. But she was happy. She wasn't depressed. She was happy. But I like the difference between me and Brian Leaf is if I go someplace, I want to prove that I've been there. If I believe a certain set of things are true, I believe they're going to be demonstrated right in my life as I live it. And so I'd like to draw it in to the actual conversation. When we talk about mindfulness, we talk about being in the here and now. Brian Lee just said, that's the same I treat gives everywhere. They give him 7,000. He's a big football star. That's nothing. To actually, actually be someplace and to look at the people and talk to them and ask them questions 
and fit that into what, how you're feeding back to the group. That's my goal. And that's why I am the only lecturer who gets up there and starts asking the audience questions. I mean, you notice that, I guess. Because I do that. Why do you think I do that? What's that? <laughs> it's good to have a right to have a I mean, what do you think I do it for? To get people interactive. That's a little better slam. <laughs> well, I, but in a way, it's true. It's true. You're not changing people's thinking. To change people's thinking, they have to be a little uncomfortable. If they like it too much, then they're thinking, well, hunky dory. We're good. Her, her opiates are addictive. What's the problem? So I, I don't mind dwelling on an uncomfortable topic and leaving throwing it out there and let everybody be uncomfortable. Maybe I lack a brain chip. You know, a lot of people think, "Oh, Jesus, <laughs> I don't want to have people be uncomfortable out there." But the second reason I do it is, well, you know, keep people awake. This guy might actually call on me, and what the hell is he actually saying? And then the third people, I want people to engage. You know, if they're not thinking, well, is he right, is he wrong? Then they're not, they don't care. They have no, it's, well, they didn't pay any money. So you say, well, what do they care? They'll sit here if the guy's entertaining, that's good enough. I want people to put their money on the table. And then the other thing is you were saying, well, I don't, exactly know what people in the audience think. Who knows what everybody's thinking? I always, I always, you're not going to find out very much. In a workshop, if I had a whole day, if you call in 20 or 30 people, you're going to kind of get a pretty good idea of where you're going. I, I didn't have that kind of time. But I am trying to figure out, well, where are people, what are people thinking about all this? What are their actual attitudes? And if you just get up there and talk, you'll never know. So I have values in a presentation to be in the here and now, to let people participate, to demand that they participate. And it's a little, you know, people can be uncomfortable, and you know, sometimes I'll say, I almost said at the beginning, I say, you know, I'm gonna be, I'll say, you know, I'm gonna be challenging your ideas. Anybody, you can leave now, you know what I mean? If, if, if you don't want that to happen, I'm not gonna, but if you're here, you know, that's the agreement you're signing on for that. So, so what would you the, say the values of the life process program are then? Of LPP, what are the values of LPP that you hold for when people either become a coach, one, and then become a client? The other, are the values the same, or are they... Well, no. Your job when you're, your job when you're in an educational position, well, we had a deal. He wants me to make challenge people and make them think new things. Your job in LPP is to help people. You know, challenging people up to you're only challenging people up to the point where you're saying, "Didn't you tell me that you want to stay married, but that your wife is very uncomfortable with your drinking? Just work that out for me." That's discomfort that's therapeutic, and the goal is what well, you're going to have to work that out one way or the other. You're not going to have to drink less or get divorced. That's where it's going. But my goal in making a presentation is it's okay for me to make them uncomfortable, to move them off center, and to make them go home and say, what do I really believe? You know, it's a different job. But I think if I'm correct, the question you were asking is about more specifically, what are the values 
of built into the life process program, both uh, from a coach's point of view and also from somebody who might sign up for the life process program. We're dying here, Biddy. Oh, you want to handle this one, Daddy? No, I'm here doing a good job. I let you run. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our value is to, we, we train coaches to be accepting, it's non judgmental. You have to be able to let people tell you bad things. You can't determine their goals for them. So we're non-judgmental. We're efficacy encouraging. They have to end up thinking, your job isn't to be a good therapist. Your job of being a good therapist means that the person is better equipped going forward to deal with their lives.